Okay, this is Ask Me Anything 13. I will jump right in here. And uh, I will do a mix of popular and controversial and new questions, however I see fit. Nothing is planned here. I will just see what jumps out. And as happens occasionally, I might answer a question I've already answered because I've forgotten that I've answered it. We now have over 100 questions or so, so it's possible I'll forget here, but jumping in. Given the recent high-profile suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, I was wondering what your take is on, one, suicide in general, and two, the rates of suicide in the U.S. in certain demographics that seem higher than the rest of the world. Well, I, I certainly do not consider myself an authority on this topic at all. I'm not sure what the rates are in the various demographics in the U.S., taking the second part of the question here. First, there's certainly an epidemic of death by overdose on opioids of various kinds. No doubt many of those deaths are unintentional. But suicide is obviously an enormous problem, and ethically, it's an interesting one. I think I can easily imagine a scenario where one would be tempted to take one's own life, and the real ethical concern is what is the effect on other people at that point? When you have a parent with young children committing suicide, obviously that poses a real problem ethically. But there's no question that people can be in so much pain and have found so little remedy for it that the personal reasons for taking one's own life become difficult or impossible to challenge. It doesn't mean there is no remedy or might not be one, but it's hard to be judgmental of people in this condition, except that is when they appear to be lashing out or at least totally disregarding the people in their lives. When those people are kids, as happened, I think, in both the case of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, I think they both had fairly young children, it's just totally tragic. But obviously, the, the underlying problem in most cases is depression. And, you know, we do have some remedies for depression. They're not perfect. And the need for better ones is clearly pressing. So we must hope for better pharmacology and better culture, ultimately. I mean, people need a way of thinking about their lives and the, the ups and the downs in their lives that inoculate them against despair of that kind. In one sense, it's a biochemical issue. In another sense, it is a cultural and interpersonal one. I haven't followed the Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain cases too closely, but I think in Bourdain's case, there was a recent infidelity with his girlfriend that might have triggered it. Honestly, Kate Spade's suicide might have triggered Bourdain's. It's well known that famous suicides are contagious, and Bourdain used the same method that Spade did. The conversation about suicide is complex because, on the one hand, it is a conversation about depression and the treatments and lack of treatments for it. It's also potentially a conversation about substance abuse in many cases. And when you're talking about trends in suicide or copycats, of high-profile suicides, you are talking about the problem of social contagion 
So it's a complex issue. I have not thought a lot about it, but the kind of mental states that would lead someone to see no other option. Now I'm leaving aside euthanasia and taking one's own life in the face of terminal illness or truly untreatable pain. If you're talking about mental pain, then there are remedies that should be fully exhausted before one even entertains this idea. And that runs to psychiatry and pharmacology, antidepressants. It also runs to things like meditation and changing your life, changing your diet, changing your exercise, changing your relationships. There are many pieces that conspire to make people feel better and worse. And there's very rarely one answer or one problem accounting for the difference here. So if you're depressed or otherwise deeply unhappy, you have to systematically grab every lever that can be brought within reach to impact your mental state. The challenge, of course, is that when you feel sufficiently lousy, and this is especially true of classical depression, you least want to do the things that would make you feel better. You least want to get out of the house or even shower, uh, much less socialize or exercise or do any of these things that stand a chance of bringing more daylight into your mind. So you do have to get behind yourself and push to some degree. And needless to say, you should never hesitate to seek help in doing that. What are your thoughts on hypnosis? Well, hypnosis is yet another topic I do not consider myself an authority on. I know that it is a legitimate phenomenon. It's not an example of woo or uh, an urban legend. Some people are more hypnotizable than others. And some of the examples of hypnosis do grade into things that are difficult to characterize. I think a lot of what you see on stage with various mentalists and hypnotist performers is hard to disentangle from the social pressure to conform that many people feel in that circumstance. I don't know what degree to which people can be hypnotized to do something that would be genuinely embarrassing or that they wouldn't otherwise willingly do. There's certainly examples of this from performances, but Again, I'm not sure how much of that is social pressure as well. Pressure not to disappoint the performer or decline to do what seems to be expected of them by an audience. At some point, I'm going to get Darren Brown on the podcast. He's a very accomplished mentalist, as you probably know. And he's done many specials where people prove highly suggestible. I'd like to hear what he thinks about all this. but. A hypnosis, per se, of a sort that is used in psychological research and clinical practice, that's a real phenomenon, but again, it's, it seems to me one in which people retain control and aren't actually given a post-hypnotic suggestion that they wouldn't otherwise want to comply with. So its power is limited, but nonetheless there, I remember as a freshman in college, I was in Phil Zimbardo's Psych 101 class, and 
volunteered for some research in hypnosis, and they took the people who were most suggestible and least suggestible, and I was on the most side of the continuum. Then they put us through a battery of tests to see what could be done with us through hypnosis. So the one example I remember really working for me was they regressed us to an age. They might have said, you're now nine years old. And they gave us a piece of paper, and they asked us to write the year and our names. And I remember writing the year without doing any mental math. I was not determining what year it would have been when I was nine. I simply wrote the year. It turned out to be the correct year. And I wrote my name, and that without thinking about it consciously at all, the script in which I wrote it was just this bubbly nine-year-old's writing of the sort that I used at the time. It did not look like my college-age penmanship at all. I gotta say, to be on the subjective side of that was fairly stunning. And there were a few other things that happened there under hypnosis, but I haven't explored it very much since. It's different from meditation because you're, while you superficially may seem to be invoking a similar state of tranquility and focus, you're placing into your mind various concepts, or the hypnotist is doing that, and hoping that those concepts become effective when you're outside that state. Again, I'm, I'm not actually skeptical that it works for various things, but I have spent very little time doing it, and I have not read much of the research of late. But from what I recall, it is a real phenomenon. You've spoken about how damaging it can be to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. Do you see any value in being lost in thought or daydreaming as a means to be more creative, or is it always harmful? Uh, no, it really is. It's only harmful if you are suffering or creating the ground for future suffering for yourself or others. It's only harmful if you're overlooking the well-being that is available to you in the present and being pitched into some other state. Now, whether being lost in thought or daydreaming is ever the best use of your time, I'm not sure, but it's just inevitable right? Thoughts just keep coming. So that really just comes down to what your thoughts are creating for you by way of emotion and intention and whether they're useful for creative projects, as you allude to in this case. Obviously, there are certain things you can only do by thinking creatively. If you're going to write a novel, you have to come up with each sentence and each moment of dialogue and each change in plot and there's no way to do that but to be thinking those thoughts. Where mindfulness comes in is in a capacity to break the chain of thought that is leading nowhere worth going, that's leading merely to suffering or to conflict, or is just in itself a waste of time. Being able to notice a thought as a thought, i.e. being mindful, gives you a choice which you don't otherwise have. If you can't do that, if you don't know how to meditate, you're simply thinking all the time, and there's no option to do otherwise. And then you really are at the mercy of whatever the next thought happens to be. And it's a scary place to be, honestly, because so much of our thinking is 
not only pointless, but seems designed to make us miserable. So it's a capacity that I highly recommend one get in hand, but it doesn't close the door to all future thinking because the thoughts will just keep coming. If you could have PhD-level knowledge of any subject other than neuroscience, what would that subject be? I would have to say either mathematics or computer science at this point. Both just seem so useful for engaging the future that um, I would have to say one of them. So uh, yeah, my lack of knowledge in both those areas seems like a missed opportunity. But uh, it seems there's not time enough in life to uh, get all these tools under one's belt, or at least not time enough yet in my life. My friend's sister was recently murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. When I talk to my friend, she says that the only thing keeping her going is the knowledge that her sister is in heaven, smiling down on her. Many studies have shown that religious people cope better with grief. What are your thoughts on this aspect of religion? And what strategies can atheists use to help in such dark times? I also wonder what you would say in response to statements like these from a grieving friend. I didn't exactly feel like crushing her, so I nodded and agreed. Well, this is something I speak about in that talk I gave some years ago, Death and the Present Moment. I think there really is something that religion gives people that atheism can't here. And it is the happy fiction that you get everything you want after you die. There really is no replacement for that that can be rationally defended, at least at this point. So if someone genuinely believes that their lost loved one is in a better place and they will soon be reunited with him or her, losing that belief will seem like a real loss. Now, other Good things come in his wake, but they're not the same good things. I think you, in the absence of such a belief, have a more mature and resilient and, needless to say, honest relationship with grief and with the inevitable suffering that you and those you love and even perfect strangers will encounter in this life. It's what it means to be a grown up with respect to the reality in which we find ourselves. But whether or not you can tell someone who just lost their sister in this case, to a murder, no less, to grow up and accept the reality of the situation, that obviously is not a tempting option. So there's scope, honestly, to just nod your head in situations like that, or give someone a hug and not spell out your philosophical or metaphysical doubts. I wouldn't lie to a person who asked me what I thought there, but what I think is somewhat non-committal. I don't know what happens after death, right? I see no good reason to believe in a traditional religious story about what happens. But death remains mysterious, and I'm happy to communicate some version of that at times like these. I don't endorse someone else's fiction, but I don't pretend to be certain of something that I'm not certain of. It really is just a question mark for me. I have no idea what happens after we die. I see no reason to believe that 
one's personal identity is conserved in any way, but until we know exactly how consciousness arises, we won't know exactly when or where it ceases. And that's the state we're in, scientifically and philosophically, at the moment. Consciousness is not understood. Have you ever struggled with depression? I can't say I've struggled with it. I think I live on a depressive side of the spectrum of mood, certainly. No one has ever accused me of being too upbeat <laughs> or, or too joyful, but it's never tipped over into what I would consider depression that would inspire me to seek treatment or worry about it. But many people in my life have struggled with it to one or another degree, so I'm familiar with it, and I've, I've experienced it transiently based on various bad things happening in my life or states of especially low energy. I've read some very good books on it, so I feel like I have a high degree of cognitive empathy for what depression is like. If you haven't read anything good on it, I recommend William Styron's book, Darkness Visible and also Andrew Solomon's book, The Noonday Demon. Both are fantastic. Is there anyone you find intellectually intimidating? If so, why? I don't really have that experience of being intellectually intimidated. There are people who are clearly better at many intellectual games than I am. I think I'm fairly aware of my intellectual deficits, and... When I meet people who don't have those deficits, or where my area of deficit is their area of principal strength, I just find that interesting, and I want to learn from these people. So being intimidated doesn't really enter the picture there. I mean, to take one example, if I were talking to a mathematician or an historian you know, someone who had mastered a domain of knowledge that I've spent comparatively little time focusing on, intimidation isn't the feeling I get when the mismatch between their knowledge and my relative ignorance gets exposed. It's either interest or regret that I can't play that game with them. It's almost like seeing someone playing a sport that you don't play. Their abilities aren't so much intimidating as they are impressive and you regret you can't have that particular species of fun. And that's more or less the way I view my intellectual life when I find myself interacting with highly competent people. It's like either I can roll with them or I can't on any given point, but I think I'm quick to realize what's in my wheelhouse and what isn't. And I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that difference, apart from remaining mindful of it. Sorry if this is not a satisfying answer. The question seems to suggest one of two states that are possible, and I think there really is a third. So state one is to answer no because I think I'm as smart as anyone I could ever speak to. That's not true. But the alternative suggested by the question is to then be intimidated in the presence of certain other sufficiently smart people. But what I find when I'm interacting with people like that is just different capacities. You know, some people are very good at certain things, 
and not as good at other things. And this might speak to a limitation in my experience here. I haven't met anyone who struck me as such an omnibus genius that they couldn't be obviously wrong in any given moment, on any given point. That's not an experience I'm noticing even when I meet people virtually long after they're dead, right? When you read the most fully considered thoughts of people who took the time to write them down, you know, you read Einstein's essays, say. It's easy to find sloppy reasoning when in the presence of the best minds, even in what they thought were their best moments. So, you know, we're all playing whatever interesting games we have figured out how to play. And um, we're all often only as good as the last swing at the ball, really. And the kinds of intellectual errors you can see very smart people making, especially when they have an emotional sunk cost or some other form of attachment to things being one way or the other. It's fairly amazing. So intimidation doesn't make much sense even in the presence of greatness. Steven Pinker has brilliantly shown in his book that the world is perceived more dangerous than it is because of the constant coverage provided by the mainstream media and even social media. Is it also possible that the free speech crisis or the crisis of political correctness, especially on campus, is to some extent overblown because of the constant coverage by more conservative media outlets? Yeah, I guess that's possible, and I think many of us are uncertain as to how widespread this moral panic is on campus in particular. Is it just a few universities or a hundred, whereas all the others are more or less as we remember them being, or is this really truly widespread? There are differences of opinion there. There have been some polls done that argue one way or the other. I know Jonathan Haidt at uh, the Heterodox Academy thinks the problem is not at all exaggerated and has a new book coming out on that topic. But uh, I think my perception of this problem is not driven much at all by conservative media, and it is more a matter of running into it myself when dealing with people, especially online. So my sense is that it's ubiquitous just from my personal experience. But again, I could be sectioning the, the memosphere in a peculiar way based on who I am. So whether it is a true epidemic or just a more local problem, it's still a problem. And it's a problem even in mainstream media. It's a problem at a place like the New York Times. If you look at how Barry Weiss has been attacked by her own colleagues at the Times, there was a slack conversation that was leaked at one point, showing other employees at the paper acting like true social justice warriors, hankering for their safe spaces. It's fairly amazing the degree to which political correctness has reached into even the most serious media outlets. And this culture of apology now, where someone says something slightly off-color and there are instant calls for they're firing, and then the forced apology is soon coming. Things are getting way too thin-skinned on the left. And the, by comparison with what is managed on the right, 
it just seems politically totally dysfunctional. You know, Al Franken is immediately destroyed while an actual child molester can run with a clear conscience in the Republican Party. I'm referencing Roy Moore, who at the time was not even denying having relationships with 14-year-old girls as a 30-year-old man. The asymmetry there is dysfunctional. I'm not saying that the left should want to be more like the right in this regard, but there is a spirit of moral panic on the left now that is causing it to eat its own in a way that simply doesn't happen on the right, or if it does, I haven't seen it. And it's not hard to see how that's a disadvantage politically. In your podcast with Masha Gessen and several other guests, you talk about a lack of, quote, assimilation amongst Muslims in Western countries. As evidence, you cite polls that show lack of support for liberal values amongst Muslims. My questions are, how do you reconcile these polls with the voting records of Muslims in Western countries who overwhelmingly vote for liberal parties with a progressive agenda? See the UK statistics below. Similar results can be found in Canada and the US. How do you differentiate between assimilation and integration? Why should Muslims, especially first-generation Muslims, be required to, quote, assimilate rather than integrate? Well, I, I confess I don't have a clear distinction in my mind between assimilation and integration. In either case, I don't mean taking on absolutely every cultural attitude and practice and symbol of your host country. I think there's room for celebrating cultural difference and differences in ancestry and heritage. And I mean, there's just nothing wrong with importing your music and your clothing and your food and whatever is beautiful coming from outside the host country. There's no sane person who is against that. When, when I talk about assimilation and perhaps integration is a better word, for a society to be healthy, immigrants have to be disposed to take on the values and practices that are necessary for keeping that society healthy. And this relates to you know, ethical and political values, a belief in political equality, regardless of gender or race or religion. If you're not committed to that, right, if you're a Muslim who thinks that in the fullness of time, Christians and Jews should be made to pay a protection tax and Hindus should be eradicated as Islam actually teaches, this is not debatable, that's a problem. So if Muslims don't relax their adherence to doctrines of that kind, there is a conflict between the values of Islam and the values of any Western democratic society. And we lie about that at our peril. Uh, hence the unique focus on Islam, because other religions don't quite have that problem. Some have similar problems, but Islam has these problems in spades. So integration and assimilation have to happen on those points. If you listen to what Islamists say amongst themselves in any of these countries, they will tell you they're waiting to take over in a way that will not be a matter of spreading the joy to non-Muslims. So there's a war of ideas that has to be won here. And yeah, I think any society should want to be able to control the numbers of people it imports into it that don't share its values.
I think the place where Masha and I disagreed was just how different are the values of Islamists from anyone else who might be crossing a border. I think they are fairly different. They're more different than most Christians you will meet in the 21st century. And she wasn't quite ready to concede that based on her experience with a kind of revanchist orthodoxy in Russia. I can't discount the vividness of that experience, but I can say that my study of public opinion among Christians and Muslims worldwide leads me to a different conclusion. That's not to say you can't find religious maniacs among the Christians. You absolutely can. And if you go to a place like Uganda, they appear to be everywhere. But generally speaking, Christianity is in a different place in the 21st century. And we have far fewer problems of Christians assimilating into Western society or integrating. Choose your favorite word. And as to the point about the voting history of Muslims in the UK and elsewhere, well, that kind of cuts both ways because the alternative is the right, whether it's the populist anti immigration right or the Christian right in the US, right? I see easy to see that that would be hard to align with. And the left is rather famously confused about these issues. The left is easily co-opted by Islamists. Islamists can pretend to be a victim group. You know, they're the ones who have branded any criticism of Islam as a doctrine as Islamophobia, a species of hate and hate crime. And it's the left that has accepted this idiocy as a kind of core value. So it's the left that can celebrate Linda Sarsour as one of the heads of the Women's March. It's the left that can't figure out what's wrong with locking arms with Louis Farrakhan. It's the left that can't see any irony in the hijab being championed as a symbol of women's empowerment. Only the left could be so confused as to think that a concern about female genital mutilation or forced marriage must be inspired by bigotry against Muslims as people. Only the left is drawing those equivalences. And it's upon that low ground of moral confusion and vapid multiculturalism that every Islamist and jihadist plants a flag and consciously leverages grievance culture and identity politics as a liberal norm to be wielded as a weapon against liberalism itself. It is amazing how cynical and effective this strategy is. And it's incredibly depressing that to even talk about it lands you in the company of people who are only listened to on Fox News and bad websites. A concern about the spread of Islamism seems to most people on the left like a fringe right-wing concern. You know, Sharia courts is a left-wing punchline. You just have to spend more time with the work of people like Majid Nawaz and Ayan Hirsi Ali and their foundations to see how confused all of that is. And famous left-wing organizations that have historically done a lot of good, like the ACLU or, worse still, the Southern Poverty Law Center, are capable of getting these things wrong all the time. The moral and political confusion here is on the left. And that should trouble us because 
the right, when it is correct on these issues, is so rather often for the wrong reasons, for reasons of its own bigotry or religious dogmatism, or both. Sam, you've been critical of the Democratic Party for its over-reliance on identity politics and its electoral strategy since the 2016 election. You've also been critical of figures like Bernie Sanders, who have sought to move the party away from focusing on identity politics and towards more, quote, bread-and-butter economic issues. What do you think is the best-slash-optimal strategy for Democrats in combating Trump and the GOP in 2018 and 2020? Well, I, um, I have a strong sense of what seems guaranteed to fail. I don't have a clear picture of what is likely to succeed. And I certainly don't have a picture of a candidate for the presidency who seems plausible at this moment. But leftist identity politics seems like a guaranteed losing strategy to me. And when I say guaranteed, I mean 100% or as close to 100% as we ever achieve in human affairs. I think running on left-wing identity politics is just pure self-immolation in 2020. And this is barring something extraordinary happening on Trump's side, like he gets impeached or does something so spectacularly awful that um, he's judged to have single-handedly destroyed the economy or something like it. But if things are more or less as they are, for Democrats to try to rally the nation over identity politics, and intersectional grievances, that will guarantee four more years of Trump, at least in my view. And specifically on the economics, I think anything that brands itself as socialism is also a deal breaker. You can define these terms however you want, but the meaning of the term is so indelible and indelibly bad in our historical memory that it just seems like the dumbest strategy I can think of for raising various economic and social priorities. So if we're going to run someone who is describing him or herself as a socialist, good luck. My hunch as to the best possible path is to find someone who is, whose credentials with respect to getting things done in the world are impeccable, a real business person for instance, who really has smart and thoughtful opinions on policy and who can seem like the adult and ethical version of Trump, as oxymoronic as that sounds. What we need is competence and integrity. That is how you strike a counterpoint to Trump. Can you reflect on your two debates with Jordan Peterson in Vancouver? Uh, yeah, well, I'm just now getting ready to do two more with him in Dublin and London. So our conversation is a work in progress. But I, I really enjoyed those events in Vancouver. They were quite different. I, I haven't heard the audio or seen the video. I have to reserve judgment until I do. But I remember perceiving them as fairly different. They each did have parts of it that were very much like debates. I certainly didn't pull my punches with Jordan on stage. But I really liked the conversations, and I like him. We have good rapport offstage as well. 
and I think he is sincere. I think he's wrong about certain things, obviously. I think some of what he's doing is fantastic and that he's quite unfairly maligned by his critics, but I think some of what he's doing is misleading or wrongheaded, and that's where the discussion has more of the character of a debate. But he seems really open to having an honest conversation about these things. And that's the spirit in which I'm trying to engage him. So I don't really view these as debates in any kind of formal sense. And I'm just as happy to find our points of agreement as our points of disagreement. And then the conversation just kind of flows between those two poles. Brett Weinstein was our moderator in Vancouver, and he was very helpful in keeping us on track. One thing that's a little odd in these conversations is the effect of the audience is pretty significant. I mean, Jordan and I have different audiences. There's some overlap, obviously, they're mutual fans, but there are also many people in my audience who think Jordan is a total charlatan. And there are many people in his audience who absolutely despise me. So we're each sometimes touching the concerns and the enthusiasms of the people in our audience who are least able to see the merits of the other side. And that's weird to encounter at a live event, I must say. I mean, there, there were moments where both of us pushed back against the audience, just outraged that the audience was cheering some point or another. I think I did this at least once each night. So Jordan would make a point or a pseudo point. At one point, it actually was just nothing but a change in inflection. He just said a word with the right tone, and it produced massive applause from his fans. And I turned to the audience, and I said, what, what are you applauding? That wasn't even a point. And it wasn't a point. He just managed to invoke this crazy support. And I'm sure he thought I managed to get a laugh at his expense that was really without much content. In any case, the feeling between us is quite good-natured, and we are genuinely in dialogue. But sometimes the extremes in our fan base seem to not actually be following the spirit of the conversation. I continue to believe that Jordan is attracting a religious person in his audience who he is not successfully communicating with, which is to say that Jordan doesn't believe what that segment of his audience thinks he believes. And he's not taking the time to clarify the misunderstanding, and perhaps he's not aware of it, although I tried to make him aware of it in Vancouver. Now, whether you want to think of this as pandering or just negligence, there's a difference there. You know, at one point, I accused him, perhaps a little too provocatively, of being like Deepak Chopra at one of these events. He's letting people get away with truly idiotic beliefs and forms of non-reasoning. And if he's not aware of it, he should be, because it's all too obvious to someone who's paying attention. And when I hear from this segment of his audience, the criticism I'm getting is just embarrassing. These are not people who are thinking clearly about anything. These are people who are just desperate to be told that their religious attachments are okay. You got no more work to do in that area of your life. You're fine. You can have your Jesus and your evolutionary biology too. That's the message they're taking. And Jordan is 
sufficiently unclear about the boundaries between good and bad claims, or justified and unjustifiable claims about reality, that he's letting a certain segment of his audience get away with murder, and they love him for it. These are the people who cheer at all the wrong moments at one of these live events. Anyway, the conversation continues. I'm enjoying it. I think Jordan is having his side of the conversation in good faith. And uh, what's more, I think he is genuinely helping a lot of people, even while confusing some. And that's not something I can say about many of the people I've had similarly strident disagreements with in the past. But when you hear the audio or see the video of these events, you will see that I didn't pull any punches with Jordan, and yet the conversation managed to stay on track, which was a good thing. Why won't you speak with ta Coates on the podcast? Uh, then the questioner goes on to suggest that ta Coates doesn't seem as confrontational as some of the people I've had on the podcast, and if I'm willing to have conversations with people like Ben Shapiro on the right, the questioner doesn't understand my aversion to ta Coates. Well, we might perceive Coates differently. Well, first, let me say that the conference in New York in November has a panel on race. Can we get beyond race is the organizing question there. And I've urged the organizer to do whatever he needs to do to get Coates on board for that panel. And I certainly hope that happens. Coates has not confirmed at this point, so I haven't announced him. I think he may be inclined not to do it. And there will be people on the panel who can sort of take his place, although not quite. There are a range of opinions on that panel already, but Coates would be great to have there. The reason why I won't have Coates on the podcast is because I think he is incapable of having an honest conversation about race with a white person. He's so inclined to play the race card as a legitimate card. I mean, even the notion of the race card would make no sense to him. I've seen him do it in dialogue with others. It would be a fool's errand to try to reason with him about race, being the lone white guy doing it. He needs an intervention, and that will only be successful if it's even possible when done by people who share his identity, and therefore the race card will be inadmissible. And if you want to hear what strike me as totally sober and appropriate and fair criticisms of Coates coming from African-American intellectuals, just read or listen to what John McWhorter or Glenn Lowry or Thomas Chatterton Williams or this new kid, Coleman Hughes, still an undergraduate at Columbia, have written or said about Coates. All of them have said more or less what I've said here, but they happen to be black and they can get away with it. A white guy like me talking to Coates, the optics are all wrong. And again, that shouldn't be so. We have to get to a place where that's a non-issue. Coates's whole approach is to demand that the audience care about the color of a person's skin, always, at all times. It's the most important thing in the world. If anything is a moral and political dead end, it should be obvious that that is. But 
is not obvious to many, many people on the left at the moment. And I think the downside of having a conversation go spectacularly badly with Coates is just not worth it. You've said that it's possible to lose the experience of free will or to cut through the illusion of free will. But you also acknowledge that there's a difference between voluntary and involuntary action. So in the absence of the sense of free will, what is the difference between involuntary and voluntary action? What does it feel like? Well, that's an interesting question. Just to be clear here, I think free will is an illusion. I think we don't even experience it. So I've called the illusion itself an illusion. It's not like it's there and then disappears. If you look closely enough, it's just not actually there. But there is a difference between voluntary and involuntary action. Voluntary action is associated with intention, and that intention can, while we're not often conscious of it, you can be conscious of it. What you're conscious of in the case of an involuntary action is the absence of intention. And intention, in most cases, I think is just a motor program that predictively anticipates the outcome of an action. And when something is truly involuntary, the brain hasn't engaged any kind of predictive processing. So there's nothing to compare the outcome to in that case. So if your hand suddenly has a spasm, say, and moves, right, well, that came out of nowhere. There was no anticipatory predictive coding that was setting the action in motion. Whereas if you are voluntarily moving, let's say reaching to pick up a glass, you have formed, if only unconsciously, a pre-motor plan. And then the action that subsequently occurs is getting compared to that plan at various stages along the way. And so if there's an error, if you reach too far and knock over the glass, you notice that error in comparison with what was planned, even though you weren't consciously rehearsing your plan. So that difference feels a certain way. It's a felt difference. Having your arm just suddenly shoot out from your body as a kind of ballistic surprise, that feels different from reaching based on a desire to pick something up, even though you might have missed the formation of the conscious intention to reach. So that difference is just continually there to be felt. There's everything that's an automaticity, everything that's a reflex, everything that is an error, and then all the rest, which is more deliberative and classically voluntary, where your initiating of a, of a movement is fundamentally unsurprising to you, and that the limb goes where intended. Right. And experience follows, you know, sensory experience, perceptual experience follows as anticipated. Even though you might not be aware of the anticipation, the fact that you're not being surprised by a mismatch between what in fact occurs and what you tacitly expected shows you that there's this predictive process happening. Obviously, there's a, a kind of looseness of fit between what we intend to do and what we actually do, and we can tolerate some of that. But the gross mismatches, when you have no idea what is causing movement in your body, 
when it's truly involuntary, that feels quite different from consciously deciding to move. But again, that difference does not at all entail a global feeling of agency or of free will or even of selfhood. You can notice these distinctions even without feeling like a self. You certainly don't need to feel like there's a thinker or a subject or a self that is the conscious source of voluntary movements or intentions. Everything, including intentions and voluntary movements, is simply arising in each moment. What else could it do? What would constitute evidence of free will, according to you? Well, that's actually a hard question. It's, it may sound like my position on free will is unfalsifiable, because my answer to this question is, really nothing could constitute evidence for free will, according to me, because the concept is ill-formed, right? There's just, there is no account of causality that makes sense of this notion of libertarian free will or contra-causal free will, and the notion that we could have done otherwise in the past. That is the thing that people are trying to defend. And I mean, the, reason, the reason why I say free will isn't even an illusion is that there is no account of how things could appear that makes sense of this notion. If you rewound the movie of your life, you would behave exactly as you did in the previous scene, again and again. If you rewound the universe to precisely that state, and your brain to precisely that state, and your immortal soul, if you have one, to precisely that state, well then, everything would advance from that frame forward exactly as it did. So the notion that you could have done otherwise doesn't make any sense, right? So what would constitute evidence for your having been able to do otherwise in the past? You'd have to show me that you could rewind the universe and get a different outcome, conserving every variable. And I can't see how that would be possible. So admittedly, it might be hard to understand this if you still feel subjectively like free will is just there to be experienced. But on the subjective side, it also makes no sense to me. You know, you can't think a thought before it arises, and you don't know what you'll think next. So how do you get free will out of that? I literally do not know what I will think or remember or intend next. If I just sit here and wait for the next thought, it will arrive and be fundamentally surprising. It's not that it will be totally out of character. It's not like it needs seem like somebody else's thought. And as I've demonstrated many times in talks, take any, any choice, any conscious choice. Think of a book you've read in the past. What's the first one to come to mind? Whatever it was, did you choose it? In what sense did you choose to think that thought? There is no sense in which you chose to think that thought. You're a mere witness of a thought that arose out of the darkness. And everything is like that. Again, if thinking about this bothers you psychologically, please stop. I occasionally meet people who find this line of inquiry very disturbing. But there need be nothing disturbing about it. 
everything is just appearing. That's the way the universe is. That's the way our minds are. And none of this negates the kinds of choices we want to make in life to live lives worth living. Still matters that you avoid putting your hand on a hot stove because the difference really matters to you through no free will of your own. Still matters that you treat people kindly because it matters to them and you will care how they treat you in turn. None of this changes in the absence of free will. What are your reading habits? What time of day do you read? Do you read many books at the same time or one by one? Do you read ebooks or paper books? Well, I have a, I think, a boring but unsurprising answer to this question. I read a lot. I read at almost any point in the day. I read both print books and ebooks, and I listen to audiobooks. And when it's especially important that I get a book into my head as quickly as possible, or as reliably as possible, I often purchase that book in all three forms and just try to cram it in one way or the other. So sometimes I'll be listening to the audiobook while I work out or commute, and then I'll be reading the electronic version on my phone or on an iPad. I'm just doing whatever I can to get the book in. Otherwise, I some books I read in the print version, and sometimes I just get the ebook or just the audiobook, depending on what seems right. But I'm just constantly reading, and I read before I go to sleep rather often. I'll read over a meal. I'll read. It's just it's one of the main things I do. And because I will never read everything that's worth reading or that I will wish I had read, if a book is not satisfying me, I feel very little commitment to finishing it at this point. I can just move on. And it's, to some degree, that's what ebooks have done to me, always having dozens of other books on my phone or on my iPad behind the book I'm reading, for better or for worse, has undermined my commitment to any one book. So a book has to be really good or otherwise compelling for me to stick with it at this point. But generally, I have to do a lot of reading to do this podcast and to write and speak on various topics. And so reading's just, in addition to being one of the things I truly love to do, it's something I have to do. So I just keep it going however I can by whatever means necessary. One of the things that lately has given ammunition to your critics is that you seem to believe yourself immune to the cognitive biases that we are all subject to. For example, based on very limited interaction, you confidently pronounce Charles Murray to be utterly scrupulous. After a phone conversation with Stefan Molyneux, you declare him to be innocent of having certain unsavory beliefs. But six months ago, what would your assessment of Lawrence Krauss's character have been? And this is someone you've known for much longer and in many more contexts. Okay, well, this is its tempting not to answer this question, but it's, there's just so much confusion here that it's, uh, it's perversely irresistible. Okay, well, first, I would never say that I'm immune to the cognitive biases that most people are subject to. In fact, I've said the opposite. I'm sure confirmation bias and you know, the top 100 biases also are at play in my brain. But in any specific instance where 
the allegation of bias is made, I'm in as good a position as anyone to evaluate that allegation. And in cases where it's absolutely clear to me that it's not a matter of bias, well, then I just have to be honest about how I see it. Now, I could be wrong. It's totally possible. But, you know, I tend not to go to the mat on places where it's at all unclear to me what I think or why I think it. And all of these situations are different and importantly different. So take Charles Murray as an example. Yes, I think Charles Murray is an honest scholar, not motivated by racism, from what I can tell. And the most controversial bits in his original book, The Bell Curve, are fairly innocuous and scientifically well-defended. That's just a fact, right? It's an inconvenient fact. It'd be so much easier to be able to say, oh, no, he crossed the line there. That's just too bad that this guy gave free reign to his bias. I want nothing to do with him, right? That would be a lot easier given how much punishment you come in for defending Murray at all. And there are people who I could say that. Uh, so James Watson, co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, right, has famously put his foot in his mouth on questions of race in various interviews and elsewhere. I haven't spent a lot of time focusing on what Watson has said, but some of the things he has said have been scientifically innocuous, but some seemingly haven't. And he seems like a bit of a loose cannon, right? He just sounds off on these topics in ways that are not entirely defensible. I'm not tempted to defend Watson as an impeccable academic here. The truth is, I don't know Charles Murray. I've only spoken to him once on the podcast. All I can deal with is what I've read and what I heard the man say. And that's the limit of my basis to judge. With uh, Stefan Molyneux, I've judged Stefan as someone who I haven't wanted to have on the podcast for a variety of reasons. But when Christian Picciolini accused him of Holocaust denial and Stefan pushed back, saying that he didn't deny the Holocaust, it was fairly easy for me to resolve that in a phone conversation with him because I simply had to ask, hey, Stefan, what do you think about the Holocaust? Did it happen? Do you have some fringe view here where you want to talk about maybe it happened, but the body count has been grossly exaggerated? Or what, what's your view on the Holocaust? And he just signed on the dotted line. You know, I have the mainstream historical view of the Holocaust. Whatever mainstream historians say about the Holocaust, that's what I believe about the Holocaust. That's not Holocaust denial. You can prove you're not a Holocaust denier just by not denying the Holocaust. It's a performative act. It's like you can prove you're not a vegetarian by eating a hamburger. It's not a matter of being a mind reader. It's a matter of what it takes to be a Holocaust denier in this case. Now with Lawrence Krauss, Lawrence is somebody who I've spent not a lot of time with, but a fair amount of time with at conferences and various meetings over the years. He's someone who I've always liked and considered a friend and a colleague, but apparently he was behaving in ways with women that, uh, had I known about it, would have found totally indefensible. And 
The point is, I didn't know about it. You don't know what happens behind closed doors unless you happen to be there. So these are just not analogous situations. Sam, how do you balance loyalty and honesty? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure I see a tension between the two, though one is strongly implied. In order to be a loyal friend, I feel like that places a special burden on honesty, right? I mean, that asks more of my honesty rather than less. So I actually don't see them in opposition. Maybe you're thinking about how I would talk about someone in public who is also a friend if I disagreed with them. In that case, I think that friendship is probably causing me to calibrate my speech more the way it should be calibrated anyway. You know, it's actually causing me to think about the effects of what I'm going to say more than I otherwise might. Obviously, if there's somebody who, for whom my honest opinion is very negative, well, then that person is unlikely to be my friend in the first place, right? If there's somebody who I think is a terrible person or doing terrible things, and I find myself tongue-tied when asked about what they're up to, that's just not a situation I'm in because I don't have friends who I think are terrible people who are doing terrible things. I'm not finding myself in a position of needing to be loyal to someone who I don't otherwise support. I guess that's what I'm saying. So I'm not really coming up against this tension in my life, but I can imagine some people are where they think that loyalty requires some measure of shading the truth what, to protect somebody else's ego, to protect somebody's reputation? I mean, the extreme case in politics now is you see people having to pretend that Trump isn't lying about something. There is a kind of loyalty test there being engaged again and again. Not only is there nothing like that in my life, there could never be anything like that in my life, given the importance I place on being honest. I don't know where this opposition actually shows up. And honestly, I don't think a lot about loyalty as a concept. There is love, there is one's connection to other people, and there's just the respect one might have for another person. But when someone who I love and otherwise respect is wrong, or they seem wrong, I generally tell them, certainly if it matters. So the sacrifice of honesty isn't coming up a lot for me. Okay, well, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you once again for all your questions, and we will clear the AMA page so you have a clean slate to work with, and I will see you back on the main podcast pretty soon. Until next time.